Hi there. Welcome to the Branch Life Podcast. We're so happy that you tuned in. Please join us today as we continue our series through the book of Matthew. Welcome to Branch Life Church's Seven Days That Changed the World series. This is a series I'm very excited about because it's all about the seven days from Jesus entering Jerusalem to when he died and rose again. These seven days have transformed the world as we know it. And if you join us on this journey, it can transform you too. So we are glad that you're here. We hope that you'll stay to the end. We've got some great information to share with you. And our prayer is that this series will be an encouragement to you. Don't forget to fill out that online connection card before you leave. And again, we're glad you're here. Right. Good morning. I lost my remote control to the TV. That's going to be a problem today. It was here. It was here the first time. Found it totally hiding behind the television. It's an Easter miracle. <laughs> my name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here at Branch. I just want to say uh, personally, welcome to all of you who are here and uh, who have joined us in person. It's great to kind of be back and to be able to all be back in person in these large groups. And for those that are able to join us online. Thank you guys so much for being here and tuning in. Uh, we are excited about this day because it is Easter Sunday. And as we've been talking about at Branch Life, uh, this day carries meaning. It's our one-year anniversary in this building as, uh, as Branch Life Church. It's our third-year anniversary as a church. We're just a baby church in the area that's getting started. So that's exciting for us. But if you times that like by a thousand... The resurrection of Jesus is why we are here to celebrate today. We are celebrating a risen Savior, and so we got to say together that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Amen? Man, that changes everything. Today, we're ending a couple of things. This is the last day of our 28 day of prayer. This is the last series, uh, last Sunday in our series, Seven Days That Changed the World. And it's our last Sunday in the book of Matthew. We've been in the book of Matthew for over a year, and I'm excited to tell you where we're going to go next over this next year, Uh, but we've been giving away these Matthew journals because we've gone from beginning chapter 1, verse 1, all the way now to chapter uh, 28, verse 20-something, to the end of the book, and uh, we had a couple of these left at the early service. I think they are gone, unless you want to arm wrestle someone for one they already have. Uh, But these Matthew journals have been exciting. We do have a gift for you if you are a guest with us down at the Connection Center. We're glad that you are are able to come, and we just want to express that gratitude to you. So stop by the Connection Center on your way out, and you get a gift. Those connection cards that we have, we're going to ask everyone to fill those out. You can get a head start on that now, and at the end of the service, we'll collect them as you head out of here. And if you if you have questions through about the sermon, you can ask in there. If you have uh, next steps or you'd like more information, you can do all that in the connection card. 
Uh, but we're excited to be kind of turning the page on the seven days that changed the world series, and we're obviously in the last day. And when we come to the last day, day seven technically was Saturday, day eight is the day that Jesus rose again from the dead of the last week of his life, we are now actually getting to the day that changed the world. We're actually getting to the very moment that changed the world. And it changed it in huge and dramatic ways. I, I told the story last week at our second service. Uh, we were driving around town with my son in the back. My son is nine years old, and uh, he's, he's a third grader. And on the radio, I was listening to an update news radio uh, about the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and they were saying something like 900 civilians had been killed or something like that. And, and here's a moral to the story for every parent out there. Your kids are always listening. You might think they're out on a screen in the back of the car, uh, not paying attention. Not the window screen, you know, the one that they all look at now, right, our favorite babysitters. They're on the back of the screen looking at this thing, right, and they're tuned out, and they're not tuned out. They're listening to mom and dad have a conversation. They're hearing what's on the radio, and we have had so many times that stuff would come back. Well, my son's in the back. I don't think he's paying any attention. I'm getting updated on the war in Ukraine, and all of a sudden, he pipes in from the back, and he goes, hey, couldn't God just stop the war? We were dead quiet in our car for a second. Because us parks, we don't look that exceptionally bright. But every now and then, we're going to surprise you with a pretty important moment. Like, this is the question, right? Like, he's asking, couldn't God in all of his power, the God that we worship, the God that we talk about as a family, the God that, that we're introducing to, he knows that that God is strong, he's powerful, he's real, and if there's something really bad happening, like a war where there's a lot of innocent people dying, couldn't God just step in and, and stop that? And isn't that the question, right? And, and I turn around and I look at my son, one eye on the road, one eye on my son, there's a tear coming down my eye because I'm so proud at this moment. And, and that question is so important. I said, Will, that's a, such an important question. Don't ever stop asking it. I want you to try to, what do you think? What, could God stop the war if he wanted to? Why is there still war? Ultimately, the question is, why are bad things still happening, right? If, if the world is broken and, and God wants to fix it, why doesn't he just stop that war? If, if I'm sick, why doesn't God just make me better? If my family's fractured, why doesn't God just push back? Why is there this conflict out there and there's conflict in here and we're fighting in our family and I want just God to fix that. I want our, our neighborhood to be better. I want our country to be better. I want our world to be better. And if God is so good and if God is so loving and if God is so great, why doesn't he do something about it? And, and my son's asking that question and I turn around to him and I say this, God did do something about it. And we could go into a big theological discussion, but it's really simple to try to understand what God is doing about wars, about fractures, about sickness, about brokenness in this world. God is doing something about it, and he did it, he accomplished it at the resurrection. That's why the resurrection is something that we should celebrate, because the resurrection is the beginning of God's plan to absolutely change the world. Now, here's what God does not want. God does not want us all to be a bunch of robots. He didn't design us to just mindlessly follow him. God wants us to choose to follow him. He wants us to choose goodness and kindness and love. He wants us to choose eternal life and, and God as our father. He doesn't want us to choose sin and brokenness and pain and murder and war. Yet we make those choices. And so God's coming to, to change the world 
without taking away our freedom. How does God do that? God does that by giving Jesus to us. By allowing Jesus to live a sinless life. By allowing Jesus, as we talked about last week on day six, to die a painful death on the cross. And then to have power over sin and death through the resurrection. You see, this is the day that changes the world. What is God doing about the war in Ukraine? What is God doing with the brokenness in your heart and your faith and your family? God is changing the world one heart at a time. And he's doing it through the power of the resurrection. This morning, we're going to look at, as we close out the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, which explains to us how the resurrection changed the world. And from our limited perspective, we may have always heard about the resurrection as this thing, this event that happened, but it really doesn't influence me. Like one time I heard like Tom Brady won the Super Bowl, and that's like an event that happened, but that really doesn't influence me, right? That'd be true. That's just not a big deal. And a lot of us, that's how we treat the resurrection. This thing happened way over there, and it's not really something that that has changed me. But, But here's the truth of the matter. The resurrection has already drastically changed the world. What has happened because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has been world-altering, and there are some cynics, some skeptics out there, and you may be one of them, and if you're a a skeptic, if you're exploring Jesus, you are certainly welcome here. We're so glad that you're a part of this conversation, and we don't want to continue having the conversation, and some would say, and I get it, that Christianity or a belief in Jesus' resurrection has changed the world for the worse. I mean, look at all the wars fought in God's name. Look at all the judgment and the hatred that's out there because people are kind of plotting against one another and they're doing it in the name of God or in the name of the Bible. And that's, that's just been a horrible thing for this world. And that's one really slanted way to look at the influence of the resurrection on this world. You see, Christians are people who believe in the God of the resurrection, who believe in Jesus Christ, are responsible for some of the greatest acts of humanity ever. And you can take whatever political, whatever system you want, maybe not politics, you can take whatever system you want and you can start to say, all right, how has the resurrection of Jesus positively influenced this system? Let's just take academics for a little bit. There are academic institutions, some of the greatest institutions of our time that exist because of people who believe in the resurrection of Jesus. People who cared about the education or the uplifting of young people, not only here in this country, but all around the world. Look at broken homes and broken families and, and what Christianity and Christ and church follower, uh, believers in Jesus are doing around the world to care for the orphans, to care for the sick. Talk about medical needs around the world. There is hospital after hospital after hospital after hospital, field hospitals in other countries, hospitals that are being set up in refugee zones, hospitals that exist here in the States that all were started because people had a faith in God. If you want to look at the creative arts, the songs that we sing, the art that we look at, what's filling a lot of our museums that we would consider beautiful and empowering, all of those comes from people that have a faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, no matter how you want to look at it, has had an incredible impact on you even now today. It's changed the world. In Matthew 28, we're going to see why that happened and why it's continuing to happen. Because the resurrection changes a couple of things. We're going to see it changes who we follow. If we actually believe it's true, it's going to change who we follow. We're going to see that it changes what we perceive or what we understand to be true. 
We're going to see that it changes then what we do. And it changes who we are. Some pretty amazing stuff. So we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 28. If you're using your journals, we're starting on page uh, 162. And then in your Bibles, it's Matthew chapter 28. uh, And we're going to start in verse 1. Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 1. Here's the first thing. The resurrection of Jesus has changed the world because it changes who we follow. I don't know who you follow or why, but I want, to ask, I want you to ask yourself this question. Who are you following? It's a little bit easier for us to understand who we're following nowadays because of this thing called social media. They've literally invented a button called the follow button. And when you want to follow someone, you just hit follow, and now you are impacted by that person or that institution forever because you are following them on Instagram or Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever your jam is, right? And you're now a follow. Now, why are you following the people that you follow? My dad's too old for Instagram. Uh, He's in his early 80s, and I'm going to just chalk this fun fact up to his old age. My dad, who was West Philadelphia born and raised, I mean, he like could have been the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. My father is a diehard Dallas Cowboy fan. Yeah, amen to the booze. Like, that's terrible. I, I, I question his judgment in all things now because of that one decision to follow the Dallas Cowboys when he was born and raised in Philly. He's a Cowboys fan. He's following them. Here's the question. Why? Like, why are you following them? Why is that someone that you care about? Why is that someone you're cheering for? I mean, it literally doesn't make any sense. Now, parents, here's what I want you to do today. I want you to go onto your kids' social media feeds, and I want you to go to their friends list, their follow list, and I want you to see who they're following. Every teenager just went, this is the worst idea ever. Like, Pastor Josh, what are you doing? You're making Easter awful all of a sudden. This is supposed to be a day of celebration. I don't want them on my friends list. Listen, kids, you shouldn't have a social media post. Fun fact, extra bonus points for you that your parents don't have access to. I mean, that's just like ground rule number one. That's to get in on the ground floor. Your parents need to have all your passwords, period. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Now, parents, you need to look at your kids' feeds and see who they're following. And I want you to ask this question. When you see somebody on their feed and you don't know who they are, say, why are you following this person? Why are you following this musician? Why are you following this, this famous person? Why are you following this institution? Why? why? And, and here's the reasons we're going to give. Well, because they're good at music, or they're good at basketball, or they're amazing at golf, or they're famous. And if, you are, if you're following a Kardashian, my question is why? Like, why? But millions and millions and millions of people are. I like their music. And now when you start following someone, they start influencing you. And here's here's what's going on. And it's kind of now running rampant in our lives. We are all following people or things or ideas or institutions or authors or musicians or whoever. And we don't really know why. We just are. Maybe you're following someone and you're allowing them to speak into your life, a leader, a political leader, a, a theological leader, a spiritual leader. And you're following them simply because That's what your family does. Maybe you're following them because you like the book that they wrote. Maybe you're following them because they they do a good job with their social media. But when it really comes down to it, why are you following them? What credit do they have? What reason do you have for being a follower of that person? We, We can get to shaky ground really quick with just a couple of questions. 
Now, here's, here's what's interesting about the choice that I've made who to follow. Number one, I follow the Eagles, amen? But even more important than the Eagles, I follow Jesus. And the reason that I follow Jesus is this. I am totally convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. I'm totally convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. Listen, every leader, everyone that we follow dies. Every institution is going to close down. Everyone's going to fall into history. Only one leader rose from the dead. Everyone we follow dies, but only one rose from the dead and is alive and well. And in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 6, we read this incredible announcement of Jesus' resurrection. Matthew, who is, who is writing an entire book to his friends, his neighbors, who he betrayed, Matthew, the disciple of Jesus, Matthew, the tax collector, is explaining to people why he follows Jesus, and he gets to the very last chapter, and he's saving for the grand finale The most important part, that Jesus rose from the dead. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, so after the seventh day, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, day 8, Mary Magdalene and another Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his cloth was white as snow. For fear of him, the guards, the Roman guards, the big strong guards, They laid as dead men. But the angel said to the women, who interestingly enough didn't faint, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not, get your amens ready, he is not here, for he is risen. Amen. As he said, come see the place where Jesus lay. Only one is risen from the dead, and that's Jesus. So Jesus now becomes the person that I follow because I've become utterly convinced that he rose from the dead. Now, if you have a follow-up question, which would be good in this setting, you would want to ask me the question, why do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? I'm going to give you a couple of reasons why I believe uh, that support why we should believe Jesus rose from the dead. But I'm going to tell you right now that this list that I'm going to give you, none of them are the bottom line for me. They all support the bottom line. They're all very, very helpful. But they, they aren't the reason I believe Jesus rose from the dead. They're one of the reasons. But here's what Matthew says as he's trying to convince his friends and his neighbors that Jesus actually rose from the dead. He says these things. Number one, he believes Jesus rose from the dead because of the presence of the supernatural. What we just read in verses chapter 1 through 5 were some pretty supernatural events. First, there was an earthquake. And you're like, no, wait, Pastor Josh, earthquakes are natural. (laughs) They happen all the time. Yeah, but not on demand, right? Like, the on-demand earthquake is supernatural, and this just happened at the crucifixion. Jesus was was dying on the cross, and, and when he breathed his last, the Bible says there was this massive earthquake. So just three days earlier, this huge earthquake hits Jerusalem, and the dead were walking, and that's kind of weird, and they were giving kind of testimony of Jesus and God and heaven and, and what happens after you die, and, and there was darkness over the land, and, and everyone was still talking about and trying to explain all the supernatural stuff that just happened 
happen to day six. And here we come to the resurrection, right? The most important moment in all of human history. And there's more supernatural realities going on. The earthquake is, is happening again. An angel descends. And he's glowing white and he's terrifying. And the soldiers faint and they're upset. And the women stay standing, right? And, and there's all this supernatural stuff happening. Now, why are we bringing up the presence of the supernatural? Because you cannot believe in the resurrection without a belief in the supernatural. So many of us uh, in our culture today are told and taught that you should only believe in what you can touch, what you can feel, what you can reason, what you can logic, what you can prove out. And we have this kind of very humanistic, realistic kind of logic and we're going to figure out for ourselves and we have to see it, feel it, touch it in order for it to be true and therefore there is no such thing as the supernatural, there's no such thing as God. Now that's a popular position today but frankly it's a minority position and it's a super minority position throughout the annals of time. I don't know if I said the right word there. Throughout this long period of time. Just edit that out of the live stream. <laughs> most people believe in the supernatural. Even, even like the most naturalistic person who's like totally into like touch it, feel it, or it's not real, and you say to them, do you believe in ghosts? And they'll be like, yeah, totally. I talked to my dead grandmother twice last week. And you're like, wait, what? Like, how, how are you accepting the supernatural in one area or you're believing in spirits or you're believing in predictions or you're believing in whatever, and, but you won't believe in God? The moment that you accept that the possibility of God exists is the moment that you realize that the resurrection is absolutely possible. And if your issue is whether or not God exists, that's a totally different conversation. But there's, there's not a stretch in our minds when you start looking at the world and where the world came from. Where did the building come from? It came from a builder. Where did the book come from? It came from an author. Where do I come from? I come from a creator, right? Like that's not a stretch for us to say there's got to be something beautiful. There's got to be something great. There's got to be something all-powerful over all of us. And they've got, he's got to have all of the power that we know and exist today. And he's got to be supernatural because we're natural. And once I believe in the possibility of a God, well, now the resurrection is super possible. Not just possible, but it's likely. And Jesus is not going to be the only resurrection. We're all going to be involved in the resurrection someday. So the existence of the supernatural in this moment makes the resurrection now a plausible, logical reality. And it may, as a matter of fact, be the most logical answer to what happened to the body of Jesus. Now, the second thing that is used to prove that Jesus rose from the dead is the empty tomb. And it's the first thing that Matthew points to in verse 6. He says, he's not here, he's risen. Come and see. Come and see where he lies. And so he, he opens up the tomb, and we have to say to ourselves, there's the tomb without a body. Remember, this was not a pulper's grave. This wasn't a mass grave. This wasn't a grave that was used for a lot of people. This was Joseph of Arimathea's big, huge, rich man's tomb. It was brand spanking new. It still had the new tomb smell, right? And they put Jesus in there, and he was the only one, and they sealed the stone away. And when the girls get there, and the soldiers are all passed out, and the, and the angels have moved the stone, there's no body. Now you got to explain that. Now you have to have that conversation. Now, again, that doesn't just do it for me, but that's a big part of the equation. Now, the second reason, the third thing that you see is these eyewitnesses. Now, this is a big one. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of documented historical people 
who lived and existed, who saw Jesus alive, who saw Jesus die, and then who saw him again alive after he died. And we're not just talking about one or two. We're talking about hundreds of people who saw, we have written record of, in, in a court of law, this would stand. Like, this would be, like, legit eyewitness testimony, and the jury would have to say, I got to understand what you are trying to say. You saw Jesus alive, yes. You saw him die on the cross, yes. He was dead, 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 for sure, dead. Absolutely dead, for sure. Spear, legs, broken. He was gone. They buried him. He was so dead. All right, he was dead. Now, he's, you're saying you saw him then alive? I saw him alive, and I was with 500 of my closest friends. We all saw him. We talked with him. We touched him. He was actually there. How do you explain that? The tomb's empty, but Jesus is now walking around. The other piece of evidence is, is now, now the devotions of the disciples. In, in Matthew 28, 9, and 10, it says when Jesus saw them, he said greetings, right? He showed up, greetings. Hi, whoa, you're the dead guy. And, and he came up to them, and they took hold of his feet, and they worshiped him. These disciples, I'm talking about Matthew, I'm talking about Thomas, I'm talking about Mary, I'm talking about Martha, I'm talking about Lazarus, talking about the disciples of Jesus, the apostles, plus several hundred more. When they saw him, they worshiped him. Listen, just hours earlier, Matthew is hiding. Philip is gone. Thomas is running for his life. These guys are out of there. There is no way they're going to be caught by these people that killed Jesus because if Jesus had died and just stayed dead, then their teacher was wrong and they needed to go find a new teacher. They needed to find someone else to follow. But something absolutely changed their lives where they went from hiding and scared to standing upright and proud to announce Jesus as the risen Savior. They devoted their lives to him. They gave him everything. They gave him his families. They gave him their money. They gave him their future. They gave him their words. They traveled the known world preaching about Jesus, and ultimately all of them gave their lives for Jesus. They were crucified upside down. They were beheaded. They were burned at the stake. They were run through with spears. Because they believed Jesus died on the cross and then rose again. Why would anybody do that? Because they were absolutely convinced that Jesus rose again from the dead. It changed everything for them. You don't die for a lie. And these guys died for at least for them something they thought was absolutely true. And then this massive movement of Christianity spread. The massive movement of Christianity spread. The, the Jewish leaders in, in chapters 28, 12 through 15, started to spread a lie. They paid the guards to say that the body was stolen. And what Matthew says is he says that story has been spread among the Jews to this day. And Matthew was saying, listen, you've heard the story that people stole the body of Jesus. I'm telling you another story that's going to spread even more. I'm going to tell you another story because it's true that has power that the lie doesn't have. I'm going to tell you a story of a risen Savior. And that story, the story of Jesus rising from the dead, has, has gained. It started with Jesus and his three disciples to 12 disciples and apostles to 500 disciples to thousands who then got saved in Jerusalem in just a couple of hours and a couple of days. Thousands more would get saved in Egypt. Thousands more would get saved in Spain. And over and over and over again, as the church would grow even in that first year after Jesus died. The best explanation, the most popular explanation for what happened on the cross and after the resurrection was the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people believed it in that moment. And to this day, billions of people have believed that Jesus rose from the dead. 
What a movement. What a movement. All based on these events that has now transformed our world. Now, here's, here's the thing about the proof, right? The stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled away to let witnesses in. We need to see that the tomb is empty. We need to understand that we're not crazy, that we're not so weird for believing in the supernatural, that there's actual evidence to this stuff. But as I'm standing here today, that's not the main reason I believe Jesus rose from the dead. And you're going to say, I know why you believe Jesus rose. You believe Jesus rose dead because the Bible says so. No, I don't. <gasps> I believe the Bible because Jesus says so. I believe, I believe in following Jesus, and Jesus points me to the Bible. Why then, Pastor Josh, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? I'll quote C.S. Lewis. I believe in Christ as I believe the Son is risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. To me, I don't have to explain to you why the sun is risen. We can all go out there and we can point to it. And because the sun is risen, I can clearly see what's happening. And what happens for me on a regular basis in these moments, even now, even this morning, I see the presence of Jesus in my life. I know Jesus is alive because I talk to him and he talks to me. I feel his, his, his pain. I feel his peace. I feel his power in my life on a regular basis. I see him move in my family. I see him move in our church. I see him move in our neighborhoods and in our world. I am regularly witness to Jesus Christ's activities now and today in this place, in this moment, and in this generation because I see Jesus everywhere. He's alive because he's my friend, because he's my father, because he's my savior. And if you don't know Jesus as your own personal Savior, you will not have that experience. But man, when you accept Jesus, when Jesus transforms your heart, you are able to have an intimate relationship with him where he can be present in those dark, hard moments, where he can be present in those moments where you're confused, where you're conflicted, where he's in those moments where you need advice and direction. Jesus shows up because he's a risen Savior. And that's why I follow Jesus. Now, the second thing it changes is it changes what we perceive to be true. And all of us are on a pursuit of truth. We want to know the truth. It's really hard to know the truth in an era of fake news, right? Like, who's telling me the truth? I got the internet. Everyone can believe the internet, right? I've got the books. I've got the stories that my parents tell. I've got the pastors talking on the platform. I I just want to know what is true, and we all need to know what's true. That's why I'm a huge fan of questions, because the truth is not intimidated by questions. When my son asks a loaded question from the back of the car, I'm not scared by that. I'm proud by that. I want him to ask questions. I want him to explore and come to the truth, because if God has the truth, then he's able, and easily, able to easily give it to us. If Jesus rose from the dead, then here's what I know. Everything he said has to be true. If Jesus rose from the dead, then everything he said has to be true. You see, I believe the Bible because Jesus told me so. I believe the Bible because I'm utterly convinced that Jesus rose again from the dead. And this is super, and this is massive in our lives. You see, so many of us have built our faith on a Bible that we were told to blindly believe. 
We were said, we were told, believe this and follow this, and if you don't, you're wrong because this is the Bible. And then people have taken the Bible and they've built institutions off of it and they've built structures and theologies and all kinds of stuff. And we, at some point in our lives, start saying, all right, uh, but I have a question and I don't know if I totally believe that. I don't know if that's the way it should be or how can the Bible be so harsh and call that a sin or, or how, how can the Bible kind of direct that and maybe I don't see how it's connecting and all of a sudden something in the Bible we get shaken by and because we get shaken by it, we go, you know what, I don't believe the Bible and now we go around and say, well, then I'm out. I don't believe in Jesus, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in spiritualness, I don't believe in any of this stuff because I've totally lost my foundation. Listen, the foundation for our faith is not the Bible, the foundation for our faith is the resurrection of Jesus. And if Jesus rose from the dead, now I look at the Bible through the lens of Jesus. I believe the Bible because Jesus gave it to us. In chapter 28, verse 16 and 17, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, which Jesus had directed them. And they saw and they worshipped him there. When Jesus rose from the dead, they started to believe the words of Jesus. They said that his words must be true. And if he says go, I'm going to go. And if he says stop, I'm going to stop. And if he calls that sin, I'm going to call that sin. And if he calls that life, I'm going to call that life. And if he says there's a heaven, I believe there's a heaven. If he says there's a hell, then I believe there's a hell. Listen, I wish I could erase the, the hell out of the Bible. <laughs> that's a funny sentence. That's not, that's not how I meant that. I erased the hell of the Bible. I wish that I could take the theology of hell and remove it from the Bible, right? That's the more pastoral way to say it. Man, Holy Spirit's got a sense of humor today, right? So I'll get you on Easter, Pastor Josh. I wish we could take that whole idea out. I hate it. I hate it. I hate explaining it. I hate teaching it. I hate talking about it. I don't like the idea that there's an eternal punishment, a place called hell. But the Bible teaches it. Now, why would I now trust the Bible? The reason I trust the Bible is because Jesus rose from the dead. The reason I believe the Bible is because Jesus believed the Bible. You see, Jesus teaches, and when you look at his teaching, his words quoted right from what he said by eyewitnesses, Jesus teaches that the Old Testament, he calls it the Law and Prophets, is the Word of God. He takes everything that Moses wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He takes what the prophets have wrote, Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, Jonah in the whale, yeah, that's a legit thing. He quotes the Psalms as scripture. He quotes the Proverbs, the wisdom literature as scripture. He talks about the characters in the Old Testament like they were actually alive and well. Adam and Eve, for example, Jonah in the ark, Jonah in the ark, Noah in the ark, Jonah in the whale. And he says those were God's words. So because Jesus believed the Old Testament, I believe the Old Testament. Then Jesus gives us the New Testament himself. Jesus, through the, through the eyewitnesses that are around his life, we have his actions, we have his words, we have the crucifixion, we have the resurrection, all explained to us. The people that were with Jesus wrote it down. Then Paul is, is nurtured by these disciples, by the Holy Spirit, by interactions with Jesus himself. And Paul gives us Romans and 1 and 2 Corinthians and Ephesians and Galatians, some of my favorite books of the Bible. And these disciples write for us the chronology of Jesus' life and the aftermath. And Jesus has given us then God's word in the Old and the New Testament. And so now I, I say these words matter. 
And I say, I look at these words as truth. And if everything that Jesus said is now true because he rose from the dead, I can have confidence that, the, that God has given us his word. And I can read it and I can know it and I can study it and I can question it and I can go after it and I can follow it because these are the words of God. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, it totally transformed how we see truth. No longer do you have to blindly explore for truth with your limited knowledge. You can get it right from God's word. He reveals his truth through his scripture and through this incredible creation that we are all a part of. The third thing that happens is it changes what we do. If the church is Jesus' idea, well then I'm in. If the church is Jesus' idea, I'm all in. As a matter of fact, I love my church or I love the church because I'm convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. We look then at the story of Jesus, and Jesus told his disciples over and over again, I'm going to die, I'm going to be resurrected, but on this rock, and he's talking to Peter, I'm going to build my church, and it's going to storm the gates of hell, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I've got a plan for this world. I've got a plan for after I die and am resurrected and I go to heaven. And the plan that we have, the plan that God made is the church. And it's the church to come alive and represent Jesus. Every heart that's transformed by the gospel is now a part of the church of Christ. And so many of us have trouble with the idea of church because we think that the church is a worship event on Sunday mornings. It is not. We think that the church is a building. It is not. God did not say, I'm going to build a bunch of buildings. God didn't say, I'm going to build a worship service on Sunday mornings. God said, I'm going to build my church. We don't go to church. That's really bad theology. We are the church. You see, God is raising up the people of God to represent him in local communities all around the world. And the church has been this force for good ever since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, G and Matthew takes the story of the resurrection and he puts right next to it then the instructions that we have for the church. And here's what Matthew teaches us. The church is not a worship or fellowship or teaching. That's not the mission of the church. And everyone just went, wait, what? If you think that you are doing church when you come and sing a few songs and listen to a, a preacher preach for too long, and then you can check it off your list and move away, then you totally are missing the mission. Church is not about worship. It's not about fellowship. It's not about teaching. Church is about making disciples. Church is about seeing people strengthen their connection with Christ and reach more people. Church is all about helping us take our next step in faith. And God has designed it that you need the church in order to be made more like Christ. For you to say that you're a follower of Jesus, but you don't participate in church, is like saying you're a fish that doesn't swim in water. It doesn't work that way. God designed us to do this together and to have everything in common. And God has asked you and gifted you and built you to be in community so that you are better at making disciples. As you walk in your faith with Jesus, who do you have going before you that's teaching you, that's instructing you, that's helping you, that's guiding you, and that's keeping you accountable? That's someone who's pouring into you the disciple-making process. Now, just as important, who do you have coming up behind you? Who are you pouring into? Who are you teaching? Who are you training? Who are you praying for? Who are you encouraging to follow God 
That's a disciple-making process. And so many of us think the Christian life is a solo endeavor when God said, no, you are always going to be made into a disciple and making disciples, and you're going to do it in the context of a church. I love the idea of, of mountain climbing in this scenario. If you think about climbing to Mount Everest, right? And if you get to the bottom of Mount Everest and you look up there and you go, I'm going to climb that mountain. And I'm going to do it all by myself. You know what's going to happen? You're going to die. It's not going to work. You can't climb the mountain by yourself. You need instructions. You need guide. You need, you need protection and supplies. And do you know who the best people are at climbing the mountain, Mount Everest? They're the guides. The, the rich people that pay all the money to get to the top of the mountain are all guided by Sherpas, little indigenous people who live there. And they just spend their lives going up and down the mountain, up and down the mountain. And they keep taking people up the mountain. And this guy gets to the top of the mountain. He's like, this is amazing. This is unbelievable. I can't believe it. And there's a Sherpa who's up there now for like the 900th time going, yeah, it's pretty spectacular. And he got really awesome at climbing the mountain. This guy did it once and thought he was like the man. But the best mountain climber is the one that's helping someone else do it. If you want to grow in your relationship with Jesus, if you want to get to the pinnacle of knowing God and following him, what do you do? Guide somebody else. Help somebody else get there. And then do it again. And then do it again. And then do it again. And you'll keep reaching the top of that mountain over and over and over again because you are helping make disciples. That's how this works. It's not meant to be a one-time trip that you do all by yourself. We need the church to make disciples. We can't do it without worship. We can't do it without fellowship. We can't do it without teaching. But that's not the goal. The goal is disciples being made. If you are called to be a part of a church, if you, if you are a Christian, you are called to be a part of a church. And here's, here's, here's the problem. So many of us just visit from time to time or we think we're gonna do it on our own. Maybe you're here going, the church has hurt me or I don't trust it or it's got broken leaders. Believe me, it does have broken leaders. But give it a year. Give it this next year. I want to challenge you as someone, if you're not connected to the church, to connect to a gospel-believing, Jesus is risen preaching church that believes the Bible, that loves to reach its neighbors, and give it a year. And be there over and over and over again. Be all in. Don't just try it twice and then not show up for 12 weeks and then come again. Get the kids and move on. And some of you are like, but the church hurt me. Yes, it did. And Satan's using that to keep you disconnected. Forgive and go back all in. Some of you are going, but Pastor Josh, I just had a baby. And I'm really tired. It's hard to get up on Sunday mornings. It's hard to serve. So I'm going to take five years off. No, no, no. Don't do that. You got to go haul in. You got to bring those kids. You got to make that effort because Jesus rose from the dead. And he's called us to live in community. Let's get faithful at connecting in worship and teaching and fellowship. And you then will have a chance to make disciples this year. Bring someone to Christ. Try to make a disciple without, without having a worship service. It doesn't work without having a church. Excuse me. It doesn't work. You, read them, you lead them to Christ and you say, sorry, we can't get together. We, I don't do the church thing. You're on your own now. Wait, wait. No, no. We need the community. So, so give it a year and go all in and see what God does. Why? Because he says this. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to do everything that I've commanded you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
You, and behold, he says this at the end, I am with you always. Here's, here's the danger for those of us that follow Jesus, but we don't connect with the church. Here's the danger. The great commission becomes the great omission. When's the last time someone in your life came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? When's the last time you were involved in the mission of making disciples? If the answer is, I don't know, you've only got a little time left until Jesus comes back. Connect with the church. Go all in and watch him transform lives. You need the church, and the church needs you. It's how God designed it. And if he rose from the dead, I'm going to go with his plan. So if you're saying, all right, I'm re- okay, Josh, I'm all in. I'm ready to be all, all in. I'm, I'm going to go with it. Here's, here's what God is asking us to do in this, in this. To be the church, not just to go to church, but to be the church. Here's what God's saying. Number one, he says you need to be available. Verse 16, he says the disciples went as directed. Don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together. I need to be available. And some of you aren't available because you're just frankly too busy, right? Stop that, change it, be available. Others, others of you are saying, I'm not available because God doesn't want me. Like, how could God use me? No church needs me. No church is going to ask me to be a part of what they're doing. And l- listen, I am standing up here as exhibit A. I am a dyslexic, forgetful, sub-average bench warmer. There is no sport that I couldn't play poorly. There is no, I failed my seminary Greek course, and I'm supposed to be a pastor. I, I I got all kinds of disconnections up here, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I do have. Many, many years ago, I said to God, here am I, send me. If you can use a broken, sub-average, forgetful bench warmer, then I'm all yours, God. Do something. Do anything. I just want to be a part of making disciples, however that looks like for you to use me. God, go ahead and use me. And that's all God is asking you to do. He's simply asking you to be available. And it'll be life-changing when you make yourself available to God. Then he says to be submissive. All authority has been given to me. You want it your way, stop it. Do it God's way. That's all he says. I'm God and you're not. It's a massive revelation when we realize it. Then he says, be obedient. When God says go, go. When God says stop, stop. When God says speak, speak. That's all that has to be done in your life. Here's discipleship 101. Take your next step of obedience. Discipleship 101 is your next step of obedience. And whatever that is for you, for some of you, you're sitting here going, I I knew I shouldn't come today. He's going to tell me to come back next week. And you're right. Your next step of obedience is come back next week and just take that step. Why? Because God said so, not me. Maybe your next step is to lean into God's word. Maybe you got to read it more. Maybe your next step is to repair that marriage, to apologize to that spouse or that child that you blew up with. Maybe that next step for you is to stop doing the thing that you know God doesn't want you to do, but you're doing it anyway. Maybe that next step for you is to go say to your friend that Jesus loves you and he wants you to become a follower of him. Maybe that next step for you is to get baptized. Maybe that next step for you is to get saved. But whatever your next step is, take it. That's obedience. That's how we are the church. We just do the next right thing. And then the Bible says to be empowered. <laughs> Here's the, 
You don't have to do this alone. How many of you are tired? How many of you are stressed? How many of you are frustrated? How many of you barely made it here this morning because those children are driving me crazy, right? You can just, there's so much going on and there's all these problems and there's so much pressure and there's so much stuff and now you're saying, go make disciples, be a part of a church, read your Bible. I can't take it anymore. God's saying to you, listen, he's not gonna ask you to do anything that he's not gonna give you the power to do. God's gonna give you the strength to do exactly what he wants you to accomplish in this day. God's gonna give you the peace just when you need it. God's gonna give you the energy and God's gonna give you the words. He empowers you by the resurrection power that rose Jesus from the dead. That power is now inside of you. When Jesus closes the book of Matthew, he says in the last phrase, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's how we're the church, in the power of Jesus. You see, My belief in Jesus then enables me to have power that other people don't have access to. We have power then to God, and that restores our lives. If Jesus is alive, then that same power is alive in you when you decide to follow Jesus. Because Jesus, for the Son of Man, came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus wants to come and make lost things found. Jesus came to make dead things alive. Jesus came to fix broken things. And wherever you are in your life, if you're, if you're surrounded by brokenness, if you're surrounded by pain, if you're in the midst of struggle and heartache, Jesus has come to help. He's come to fix. He's come to empower. He's come to help lead your life into a way of, of eternal life and more abundant life. He wants to walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. And God is coming to say, I'm coming to be a part of this incredible life that he has gifted you with. And maybe you're struggling so hard. Maybe you're so tired. Maybe you're so stressed because you've been trying to do it all yourself. Stop. Let God. He's stronger. He's more powerful. He's got more knowledge. He's got all the love and the kindness in the world. But you just can't forgive that person. God can. You don't know what to say one more time, how to explain it. God does. You can't put one more foot in front of the other. God can. And that power is alive and well and is inside of you. Now some of you are here saying, I don't feel God. I don't hear God. I don't see God. I wish I did, but I don't. And there's two reasons for that. One, maybe you haven't found him yet. Maybe you have not yet come to the place where you have decided to be a follower of Jesus. Yeah, but I said a prayer at camp years ago. Hey, hey, so many people said they said a prayer and then they totally never followed Jesus. Salvation is not about saying a prayer. Salvation is deciding to follow Jesus with your life. Salvation is believing in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. A Lord is someone that I follow. And maybe you said a prayer, but it never gave a rip about following Jesus. Then that's a false flag. Maybe you're here today and you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus and say, today is the day I apologize for my sin. I realize I can't fix it. I believe that Jesus died and rose again from the cross. And today's the day that I decide to follow Jesus and accept the gift of salvation. This could be the moment where you find Jesus. And if you're not sure if you're saved, if you're not sure if you're going to heaven, then today I want you just to do that business with God and to have that conversation with him. Some of you don't feel God's presence because you're far from him. You know that you've accepted him as your savior. You know that you've trusted him, but you do your own thing and you don't hang out with Jesus. 
You don't hang out with God's people. And you then don't feel his presence. You're like, there was 500 people on the mountain when Jesus gave these instructions that he ascended, right? You're like the disciple who's number 501. You're the one back in Jerusalem, and you're, you're sitting in your little housey hut thing, and you're, you're going, where'd everybody go? Well, didn't you hear Jesus said to come over to the mountain, and we're gonna, he's going to give us some instructions, and I don't have time to go to Jesus' mountain. I'm playing Fortnite. I'm doing my thing. But, but I want to be close to Jesus too. How come I don't hear his voice? How come I don't see him do miracles? How come I don't see amazing things? Because you're far from him. The way Jesus works most powerfully is when you're closest to him. When you put yourself in the presence of Jesus, you see the power of Jesus. And you access that power by drawing near to him. When you obey, when you submit, when you're available, and when you're empowered. Draw near to him, the Bible says, and he will draw near to you. And then see God do amazing things. Those 500 people that got to that mountain saw Jesus do amazing things. Gave him the great commission, ascended into heaven. They saw his resurrected body, and they gave their lives to him. You can have that same experience. That's why I believe in Jesus. Because I, I, that's why I'm empowered by Jesus, because I believe he rose from the dead. Jesus is in the business of bringing dead things to life. That's the power of the resurrection. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins. And once you wa- once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of this air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like everybody else. The best two words in the Bible are right here. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that the coming age he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's what Jesus is doing in the world now. He's bringing dead things to life. And someday there'll be no more war, there'll be no more sickness, there'll be no more pain. When he returns and he allows us all to be a part of the new heaven and the new earth. But until that time, he's showering us with the riches of his grace for those that believe. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your doing. It's the gift of God. Not the result of works, lest any man should boast. You can't come to Christ by yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't climb that mountain yourself. But when we come to God, the grace of God covers us and saves us. Have you put your faith in Jesus, in Jesus Christ? If today's the day that you would like to accept him, I want to invite you in the quietness of the next few moments to simply have that conversation with God. Confess your sin. He's faithful and just forgive. With your heart and with your mouth, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you will be saved. If you want to think about that, or you want to read about it, or listen a little bit more, you can go to the gospel tab at branchlife.church, and it's all laid out there for you. Have some quiet time, whether you're on your phone now or later today, 
And if you want to talk to somebody after the service, we'll be available. The whole worship team, everybody on this platform will be available to you if you'd like to have a conversation about what it means to be saved. Or you can just take care of it right here, right now. And follow Jesus. Now, as we close out the book of Matthew, we started in Matthew chapter 1. In in chapter 1, an angel appeared to Joseph. We called it reintroducing Jesus. And that angel said, Joseph, Mary the virgin is going to give birth. And you're going to have the job to name him. Do you know what name they said to give the baby? Joseph, you need to call the name, his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Matthew closes in Matthew chapter 28, in verse 20, he closes with the phrase, Jesus quoting, saying, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christian, who's following Jesus, who loves the word of God, who's all in with God's plan of the church. Listen to this today on this Easter Sunday. God will never leave you. He is faithful to you, and he is present with you. That's what the book of Matthew is about. That's what he's trying to tell us and teach us, that God travels this life with us. When we draw near to him, he draws near to us. Let's bow our head and close our eyes together. God, as we come to these moments and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we're thankful that you gave your son to die for us so that we could have forgiveness of sins. And God, that you demonstrated your power through the resurrection of Jesus. God, we pray that you would speak to us and show us what our next step is today in your precious name. With every head bowed and every eye closed, in the quietness of the next few moments, we're gonna ask you to do a couple of things. Maybe you just wanna have a conversation with Jesus. And if, if you're not sure about your salvation, Simply talk to God today, and I'll tell you in a moment, guide you in this conversation that you can have with God. And again, it's not a special, magical prayer that saves you. It's the faith that does. And if you want to put your faith and trust in Jesus, just simply pray this prayer in the quietness of this moment. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, I know I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for my sin. I believe that Jesus died and rose again on the cross for me. Today I decide to follow Jesus and accept the free gift of salvation. For those of you that are, are far from God today and you've stepped back into this place and hoping to hear from God, maybe God is just saying to you, come back next week. And we're excited about where we're going in the next couple of weeks with our next couple of lessons. I think you'll be encouraged by them. So just come back. But maybe God's saying to you, hey, it's time to get baptized. It's time to join the church. It's time to go tell your neighbors about Jesus. It's time to do something incredible and give God your gifts and serve in some amazing ways. And and maybe that's what you need to say to God today. Or maybe you just need to worship the resurrected Savior and let your cup be filled. We want to let you do that in these next couple of minutes. As we're singing these last songs, you have the opportunity to finish filling out your connection cards. If we can help you with any of your next steps, you can indicate it there. If today you decided to follow Jesus, we'd love to know that. Let us know on the cards. And then someone will be at, the, at each exit collecting those cards after the service is over. Let's close by worshiping together.